it really that important to eat organic? What is conscious parenting? Does homeopathy actually work? Oh god, the flu. How do I beat it naturally? How do I prepare for birth? What are the benefits of meditation? This is Healthy Happy Home, the podcast community that offers discussions and solutions for a fully conscious and integrative approach to living and parenting. We will explore and open up the topics of natural health and well-being, holistic parenting, consciousness and work-life balance to empower you to live your healthiest, happiest life. We're so grateful that you're joining us on this journey. We'd love it if you could take the time to rate, review and subscribe. It will help other people to find us so that we can grow our Elevation Nation. This season of Healthy Happy Home is sponsored by Mega Home Water Distillers, the most reliable and efficient home drinking water distiller. Mega Home are kindly offering listeners of the Healthy Happy Home podcast a 5% discount. Just use the code HHH5 at checkout. Thank you to Mega Home. We're here today to talk about the importance of informed choice and preparation for birth with our guest, Danny D.O.C. Danny is a highly qualified and experienced antenatal and childbirth educator, hypnotherapist and doula, having entered into the profession in 2004. She originally taught for the National Childbirth Trust, NCT, and subsequently qualified in natal hypnotherapy in 2008, teaching the course and training and assessing new practitioners. Danny set up her own hypnobirthing programme in 2015 after qualifying as a hypnotherapist in 2012 and is a recognised doula with Doula UK. She trains practitioners in her hypnobirthing programme here in the UK and internationally. She is also co-founder of the successful All About Antenatal programme for expectant parents, as well as author of her soon-to-be-published hypnobirthing book. Danny is mum to three teenage girls and wife to, as she puts it, her long-suffering and extremely patient husband. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Just firstly, I just want to say huge congratulations on publishing your book. Tell us all about it. Thank you. Well, it's due to be published in March, so I'm kind of frantically just kind of putting finishing touches to the first draft and everything. And it's being published by Mark Harris, who is a midwife, and he's written Men, Love and Birth. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's something I've thought about for a long time, basically because I want hypnobirthing to be as accessible to anyone not just people kind of think it's a bit of a hippie Mm. thing or only if you're having a natural birth and it's not it's really for anyone and everyone and that's what I want to get across in the book so yeah really excited March please God is when it's going to be published amazing that's so exciting um and uh would you be able to tell us a little bit about your own birth and how you came on this journey to become a doula yeah sure so I've got twin daughters who are nearly 17 which yeah I'm kind of in a shock state at the moment I've just applied for their provisional driving licenses as well so if you need me I shall be rocking in a corner (laughs) trying to calm myself down um yeah so I when I got pregnant with them and found out that I was having twins from the moment they found out it was two instead of one every appointment I had was accompanied by sort of a deep intake of breath Ooh, high-risk pregnancy, danger to the second twin, you will have an epidural. And at the time, I didn't know any different. I was just absolutely paranoid about carrying these babies to term and that everything was okay. You know, I was told I'd be lucky if I made it to 35 weeks. 
And every time I was reminded that it would, it's dangerous, you need to have an epidural, danger to the second twin. So I really spent the whole pregnancy in such a state of, of fear that somehow I was doing something to hurt my babies. Um, when I finally did go into labour, which was 39 plus four days, by the way, so wow. I mean, it felt like the longest pregnancy ever, um, I was fine. I didn't even think that I was in labour because labour was supposed to be really painful and really awful and I was having these cramps but I was okay I was moving around and I was breathing and they were totally manageable um even to the point that when we rang the hospital and you said hi 39 weeks pregnant with twins <laughs> possibly in labour and they said get here my I remember so clearly my husband and I thinking well look we'll go we'll take our bag but it's this isn't labour um and anyway I got there and they put me on the bed and they strapped me up to monitors and from that moment on it it really wasn't a very pleasant experience I remember sort of leaning forward with each contraction and they said no no don't do that it's dangerous for the babies we can't pick up their heart rate um and I remember thinking well that's okay this epidural that I've been told I I have to have Mm. I'd like that now and they couldn't give it to me because there was a query with my blood clotting factors so from that moment on, I felt that I was very much in the danger zone because, mm. of course, I'd been told it's dangerous to give mm. birth without an epidural. So that's that's what I kind of translated it as. And I almost remember having this out-of-body experience as I kind of looked at myself, screaming in pain, my husband, who had not the foggiest how to support me, and I remember thinking, look, he's getting worked up. You need to try and calm down. And then thinking, no, sod it, I actually... Well, sorry, can I say that? Yeah, <laughs> you can say anything. <laughs> I can't come down. This is awful. Um, and then I said, okay, I'd like the pethidine. And my husband, bless him, he took my hand and said, now, sweetheart, do you remember how we discussed in antenatal class that pethidine wasn't a good idea? I think I swore at him. And I just, give me the pethidine! <laughs> um, and they examined me and buzzers went off because I was 10 centimetres too late for pethidine I remember everyone rushing in from all over the place and I remember them saying don't push whatever you do don't push and at that point I felt like I needed to push Mm. and I just I mean it was such a strong urge Mm. why were they saying don't push because it would have been dangerous I'm using quote quote unquote unquote, (laughs) to give birth in the delivery room as opposed to theatre because I was having twins So they rushed me into theatre. They then decided to give me a spinal whilst I was having these full-on major pushing contractions. And so I remember them. So a spinal is like an epidural, goes into pretty much similar space in the in the spine, but it works instantly as opposed to an epidural that takes twenty minutes and then you can keep topping it up. Mm. Spinal goes in straight away, works straight away, but only lasts for an hour or so. And I remember them saying to me as I had this, don't move, whatever you do, don't move. And thinking, oh my God, am I going to be, am I going to be paralysed? And then I felt nothing. Um, And my first baby was born, Sophie, and they gave it to me. And I think I'd been sucking on the gas and air like it was going out of fashion by that stage. (laughs) I was very high. Um, And they gave Sophie to me. And then I remember everyone jumping on my stomach to hold Charlotte in place. Because once one twin is born then the other twin can suddenly sort of move around because they have a lot more space. So I just remember all these people kind of holding my stomach. And then they told me to push, and I don't remember pushing, and Charlotte was born, but she didn't breathe straight away. 
And I just remember looking up at my husband. He was telling me, it's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And as I said, I was out of it. But he had the full sort of panic, um, which I really don't think he's recovered from, <laughs> even today. Um, he can't watch birth programmes or anything like that because he, mm. he, that, it brings it back to him. Thank God she was okay. Yeah. Um, but I didn't hold her when she was made okay she was given to my husband so I didn't have that first contact with my my second twin which did have a massive effect on the bonding process it really really did for quite a while I mean I love the bones of her now which is she's gorgeous but it really did take quite a lot of time to kind of I don't know accept her bond with her in the mm. same way that I bonded with Sophie because Sophie had been given to me straight away and for many many years I can't tell you how guilty I felt about that. Um, and I do remember thinking that after I'd had them, that I know I've just had two babies instead of the one, but surely it shouldn't be like this. Mm. This this just doesn't feel right. And that's when I started training. When they were one, I started training with the National Childbirth Trust. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. Wow, amazing. Wow. So, yeah. And then, so then your third child? So my third child, um, 14 now, also a girl. Interesting age. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get it with the older two. She's a handful. Um, amazing birth. I knew a lot more. I didn't know anything about hypnobirthing at that stage, but I knew a lot more about birth physiology and how the body works and how the calmer you are, it supports the hormones and obviously being upright makes a massive difference. And I hired a doula to be with me at that stage because I'd felt so out of control with my previous birth. I just wanted somebody there mm. who could help me if that situation arose. And um, her birth wasn't textbook. I'd wanted a water birth, but when my waters broke, there was meconium in them, which is the a baby's first bowel movement and sometimes just because of the gestational age they are they will release the meconium whilst they're still in utero but that's always treated as an an issue in hospitals it's not always but it can be um, but luckily the midwife could see that things were progressing quite quickly so she kept me on the birth center um, and I gave birth to my beautiful little girl I think kind of standing up wedged in a corner <laughs> half on half off yeah. a birth ball or something my husband was so much more relaxed and calm mm. um I think because of the presence of of the doula um and yeah and when she was born her cord snapped which I think is something similar happened to yeah. to you um and I remember the midwives absolutely panicking at that point mm. and one of them saying oh my god it looks like an abattoir in here um I was just so high from all the birthing hormones and my amazing doula, whilst they were all kind of running around, faffing, panicking about getting the placenta out, she just gave me my baby. We gazed into each other's eyes, fell, I've got goosebumps just thinking about Aww. it, fell head over heels in love. She started latching on, placenta came out. And so then let's the talk end. about that then, because you were talking before about that you didn't bond with the second twin. Mm. So what is it about the, if you talk to us about the physiological birth process mm. and physiological third stage, if you can talk us through what that is and why it's important to go through these natural processes in order to bond with the baby. So when I talk about birth physiologically, I'm talking about it from the point of view of how birth 
is supposed to go according to nature's intention. Mm. So whenever I'm teaching any of my classes, I always talk about how labour has no design flaws. If you weren't supposed to feel it, you wouldn't feel it. If it wasn't supposed to happen, it wouldn't happen. So the fact that there are certain occurrences, so you feel the contractions, you feel the baby's head crowning, um, you know, it's quite normal to kind of pass a bit of poo as you're pushing your baby out. All those things happen for a very specific reason. Um, when a baby is born, it's a mother's natural instinct. Well, actually, her natural instinct is to first look at the baby and then bring the baby straight to her chest. And that process is known as skin to skin. And what that does is it calms both mother and baby down from the process that they've just been through, helps baby make baby more alert so that breastfeeding is likely to be initiated. It rewards the mother's... Um, the reward centers in her brain so that she kind of associates holding her baby and nurturing her baby as a really positive thing to do and it kind of fires off even more feel-good hormones mm. so that she enjoys doing that that act of skin to skin also regulates the baby's body temperature uh, regulates blood sugars regulates heartbeats and what's really fascinating as well is if a mother does have twins and one baby is cold and one baby is hot her different sides of her body are going to respond to those individual baby's needs because we're that amazing um it's it's if you think about it from the point of view of nature when a baby mammal is born if any other mammal or human got their scent on that baby it would be rejected so it's really a very much a sense of just connecting making that connection smelling your baby's head which is the most divine smell in the world. I still try and smell my children. They're not so complicit about it I'm anymore. I'm so happy that Vida's... She's 14 months nearly and she's still bald. Yeah. And the only reason I'm happy about exactly, that is because, because you can still smell the head. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, um, it's funny, you know, because I think in my head I've always thought that, you know, that somehow the cervix doesn't expand enough or the vagina doesn't expand enough. So can you just explain that a bit? Some sort of people... It, it totally does. Our bodies are designed specifically to give birth to our children. Um, and there is so much fear mongering about big babies getting out of teeny tiny holes. But that is what our bodies are designed to do. And I always, when I'm teaching, I always explain that nobody gets worked up about male genitalia changing shape yes. <laughs> the whole and, and shrinking back to what it was the whole time that's very true it is exactly and our bodies do exactly the same thing just because yeah. it's all internalized we don't really we We're don't really see it. that happening yeah. but you know in the cold light of date we've got to look at the fact that actually if the system didn't work we would have evolved differently yeah. or we would have died out as the human race. So the fact that we are still here and we are still giving birth to our babies all around the world, all different cultures, you know, something yeah. has to be right. So why do so many people have tears and why, do, why does that happen then, do you think? Mm, a lot, I think, because of the way that birth is managed. I think a lot of lack of preparation. And I think, I mean, there's, there's so many aspects to answering that question I think the first thing is people need to 
educate themselves and understand what's actually going on with their bodies instead of feeling icky about it. Mm. Either of you seen One Born Every, mi- any, every oh, Minute? God, I just had to stop watching what is that? it. What is One Born Every Minute, that show, the midwife show in the hospital, oh, and no. it's literally traumatic birth after traumatic oh, no, birth, and all the midwives kind of just, I mean, they all seem lovely, but they're yeah. just sitting there. It's, <laughs> like it's, eating chocolates in their little hub, I, and then exactly. someone goes into labour and they're like, quick! And they all go running, and they're all lying on a bed, and they don't show any, like... They don't talk about any of the natural no, stuff. No, I mean, it's, it's scary when they show the birth scenes. They show women scary, uh, screaming. And obviously that's more interesting television than someone who's just, you know, breathing their baby out in a corner yeah, but somewhere. but they do show that, everyone's like... Because there was that show, I can't remember what it was called. I think you told me to watch it. And it was um, about uh, women who... They basically made it look like any women who were choosing to have home births or kind of follow these natural processes were just unhinged hippies and there was one woman you know she had a rope in her hand that she was pulling on standing up holding onto the rope which is what I did and they literally edited it I can't even I wish I could remember what it was called and they literally edited it to make it look like just these women were crazy whereas the women having these painful screaming births that that was the right way but to I do it. But I think that's very much a sort of representation of our culture. Mm. You know, we consider ourselves to be sophisticated and educated. And why would you want to take part in something that looks, you know, pretty animalistic when you can kind of be tucked up in bed, mm. you know, yeah. not feeling anything? And I think a lot of the fear, going back to that question, comes from that, that, you know, women sort of assume that they're going to be totally out of control, they're going to be totally wild, people are going to see things that they wouldn't sort of normally have on show. And I can understand, if you've been brought up in a certain, in a culture, then potentially that could make you feel quite uncomfortable. So I think it is about sort of educating yourself about what birth is, how it happens, why it happens, being able to sort of answer some of those questions so that they're not fearful of them. Um, yeah, and so and the pain is a good pain, isn't it? Because it's not absolutely. A pain. And I talk about that the whole time. What's the difference between something that's pathological, i.e., there's something wrong, or something physiological, mm-hmm. as in your body is is doing something that it should be. So, you know, there's a huge difference between the pain of childbirth and the pain you experience if your appendix is about to burst. Why? Because if your appendix is about to burst, that's a warning sign. Mm -hmm. And it's a warning sign that, you know, toxins are going to be flooding your body. The pain you feel in childbirth is of a muscle working really hard and something that your body is expecting as opposed to when you break your leg it's a shock right? exactly and exactly. you also feel quite good about having been because my first birth was um, I didn't have any of the epidural thing. and actually afterwards you feel a sense of kind of pride that you went through that pain and you achieved something and it's like oh I did that you know? yeah like a- but I think also in some ways I think that's kind of making making women even more scared because I think There's so many different bits of information out there, you know, how you should give birth and how you shouldn't and whether you should have an epidural or you shouldn't do it without an epidural that actually kind of women and their partners don't know which way to turn. I think it's really important to stress that when a woman gives birth, she needs to feel positive about it, yeah. however her baby was born, whether it's vaginally or abdominally. Yeah, I mean, Lauren were talking about that yesterday, actually. Yeah. yeah, and I think actually sort of giving women the information, informing them how to ask questions, how to make a decision, 
really gives them the power back. And I think it comes down to that rather than sort of being split into camps about whether you should do it completely naturally or whether, you know, if you've used drugs or you've had a cesarean that you've somehow failed because mm-hmm. it's not like that. You know, we're birthing, if if you choose to birth within the NHS, you are birthing within a system and it is a system that categorically does not support the physiology of birth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the best will in the world, you can educate and educate and educate, but it's going to take a very bolshy woman to stand up and say, no, no. I'm doing it my way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at one in particular. <laughs> Um, when you do go into the hospitals, there are birthing centres and places where they do support a more active birth. If that's what you choose, if that's what you want. If it isn't the problem that the 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 way the NHS midwives are trained, you know, like you say, with all the will, best will in the world, but the way they are trained is within a medicalised system of birth, whereas. Uh, you know kind of more holistic midwives or midwives in in kind of underdeveloped countries who have learned from the ones before them and the ones before them and the ones before them are following the kind of natural processes yeah I mean the problem is anyone who wants to be a midwife goes into it because they want to be able to support women and their partners at the point of giving birth Mm. um but the culture is so I can't think of the fearful. world. I mean, it's just based it's on fear. fearful. It's fearful. It's fearful. So it's it's defensive practice from mm. from the caregivers. It's not they don't sort of set out to derail the birth physiology, but um, it's it's an autonomous profession. And if something went wrong, they would be responsible for it. And you know, the NHS, the biggest payouts in the NHS are are maternity suits Mm. so the hospitals have to be able to protect themselves and they're taught from day one it's about ticking boxes and and you know if they tick the box then they can't be liable and you know you get some excellent midwives within the NHS I've worked with many of them who are absolutely phenomenal and who get birth and who understand birth I had one yeah exactly but equally you get those that are sort of three actually (laughs) part of the system so a lot of it really depends on on who you have I mean certain areas they are sort of developing the fact that you get to work with a midwife team Mm. I think it's more likely if you have a home birth in certain areas you have that midwife team Um, or you at least get to see the same midwife every time you go for an appointment which makes a massive difference and if she can be there for the birth as well that's even better but that's not always always the case because they're so short-staffed, which again brings it back to education. So and is that why you then trained to do um, do the hypnobirthing and the be a doula after having done the midwife? Well, so I wasn't. I didn't train to be a midwife. Oh, okay. I trained the National Childbirth Trust was um, antenatal a diploma in antenatal education. Oh. The reason why I trained in hypnobirthing was because I'd be teaching my antenatal classes and after having had two very different birth experiences myself I um you know I could I could tell the difference between a birth which I felt really negative about and a birth which I felt you know I could shout it from the rooftops and fly just on the strength of that one and I'd be talking to my clients about how it's important to stay calm and you know upright and in control and they'd be yeah nodding yeah get it but and then the, the birth, tools. exactly. Yeah. I don't think it was giving them the tools. Um, so is that what you learned in hypnobirthing? Yeah. So hypnobirthing is a very specific technique which helps 
women and their partners to really, yeah, develop a set of tools that they can use in any circumstance. Um, Because the majority of my clients probably are going to end up having inductions or they probably will end up having intervention or they may very well end up having a cesarean. Why? (laughs) Because one intervention leads to another. Um, Induction is very much... You're told in this country that you're not allowed, quote unquote, to go past 42 weeks of pregnancy because the theory is that the placenta starts to fail and the stillbirth rate increases. So in other words, you're you're told that actually if you go to 42 weeks, your risk of stillbirth doubles which is really scary for a parent to hear. Gosh, yeah, especially after a long time. Exactly. When you actually look at the figures, and the ones that I'm going to quote are not exact, but it it goes from something like 0.01 to 0.02. So it does double, but it's still (laughs) negligible. Um, There's a, a midwife called Dr. Sarah Wickham, who is a research midwife, and she's got on her website... She's got absolutely loads of research-based evidence which says that actually, you know, going past 42 weeks isn't necessarily an issue. The problem is that piece of information has been around for so long that it's actually become entrenched. And if the study that that was based on was done nowadays, it wouldn't be considered robust enough Mm. to be passed as... as So again, it comes down to fear... And fear. the fear that our modern society is instilling in women that their bodies just do not ha- are not capable yes. of following their own physiological exactly. processes. Exactly. And, uh, so I want to go back to talking about when you said um, hypnobirthing gives you the tools. Yeah. Um, what it did for me with your course, I I, I uh, always kind of wanted I don't know why or where it came from I'm lucky that my mum never had this fear of childbirth and she mm. never put that on me and I think a lot of mothers do yeah um I always wanted to experience birth so I didn't come to you with this huge fear but my husband came along um after working a whole week and knowing that we were going to do your two-day course which is now only one day it's now only one day sorry Daniel um, yeah <laughs> and he said oh, for god's sake I've been working all week and I've got to spend a whole weekend doing this more studying and uh, came out of your course at the end of those two days and what happened he left he left you the the, the most amazing testimonial oh, he's he? like my number one fan he, love him he <laughs> is her number one fan <laughs> he came out and he said i'm literally i don't even know what to say about this because i'm so excited his his words were he thought that he wanted to support me in my decision to try and have a natural birth in the birth i believed my body was geared up to do um, but he didn't believe that that could happen because in his mind, you know, even when you watch things like Friends, you know, yes, Rachel having the exactly. baby, scream, just everything, even sitcoms, the way we are subliminally conditioned to view birth. So that's how his brain was wired. And then he said, but now I believe we can do this and I'm going to do it with you. And honestly, hand on heart, he was my doula. Aww. Like he was so amazing because of the tools that you gave us. Um, he was so set up to be my birthing partner and that's why I believe because my first labor with Brax as you know was a back-to-back labor it was 24 hours of active labor so from six in the morning till six in the morning it was not an easy labor Mm. um that's why they call it labor exactly um and you gave me the tools to be able to cope with that I prepared heavily 
based on the information that you had given me and that I'd got from, you know, other sources, Iname, Gaskin's, Iname's Guide to Childbirth, um, and Spinning Babies, but also because Daniel believed I could do exactly. it and he knew my my wishes. Yeah. And so when it got really hard and I was pushing for too long because he was back to back and in any other and I was still in the pool and I was still in the birthing centre. And I do believe that without those tools, they would have moved me to the delivery suite and they would have said, no, you can't, you, you, this isn't happening, mm. this is baby's getting distressed. Mm. And we didn't put any monitors on, we let them listen to the heartbeat. And it was Daniel being as calm and it gave him a sense of purpose. He was as much a part of it as I was. Yeah. Because if it wouldn't have been for him keeping calm and being aware of all the physiological processes, because he didn't just come to the course... He studied it afterwards, oh, and we him. did the hypnobirthing <laughs> together every yeah. night. I was going to ask you that, because you said you do it in a day, so yeah. that you, if people want to do a hypnobirthing course, they can learn a lot from you in a day, and then they go on to look, you know, look into it more. Is that what, what do you sort of teach in that day? So it's basically the, the physiology of birth. So I talk them through what happens in birth, why it happens. Um, Let's be clear, you're not hypnotising people. Yeah, it's no. It's a strange name. It's, it's a really it? strange name, but it's stark. You know, yeah. it's like saying you're going to do the hoovering, but you're using a Dyson or a Mealy. You <laughs> yes. know, it's, 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 it's what Has people search for. Has anyone tried to for. change the name of it? Um... Not really. I mean, I think natal hypnotherapy were, you know, trying very much to kind of yeah. call it natal hypnotherapy mm. as opposed to hypnobirthing. But it's, it, it that's that's what people look yeah. for. That's what people search for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is a hypnosis element in the sense that you are you are put into a relaxed state, and whilst you're in that relaxed state, positive suggestions on how you handle the contractions, etc., are given. And the more you listen to those downloads those positive suggestions become accepted by your subconscious. So um, a lot of the sort of instruction on how you're going to work with the contractions is instilled on a subconscious level, which is why the change, I think, is so profound. Because if your mind is thinking one thing and your subconscious is thinking another your subconscious is always going to win because that's kind of base for survival. If through the hypnobirthing you've kind of reframed those yes, thoughts about contractions, yourself, yeah, yeah, so, you know, the mind and the, the, the conscious and the subconscious kind of marry together so everyone's speaking the same language, it's much more likely to take effect, which is what the difference is, I think, between hypnobirthing and antenatal courses. Um the techniques really, so it's a lot about understanding the physiology of birth, looking at how a woman's emotional state of mind changes throughout labour. So everyone fixates on how dilated the cervix is, but that's information that they're not really going to have access to. And in a way, once you find out a number, you start calculating and think, well, it's taken me this long to get to five centimetres. How on earth? Am I going to have the strength to get to this magic 10 centimetres? When actually examining the cervix is literally like taking a picture of what the cervix is doing at that time. Mm. It, it doesn't say what's happened before. It doesn't say what's happened afterwards. So giving couples other ways and means of kind of getting an idea of where she is in labour helps them to feel more... I mean, I say in control. It's well, not empowered, about... Empowered, yeah. yeah. Um, also this word only, I think you had that with Brax oh, as well. Oh, you taught me that, and yeah, and I and I remember Daniel saying to the midwife when we arrived at the hospital, 
don't use the word only. And I heard him whispering, if she's only two centimetres, don't say only, just say, you're two centimetres. And as we arrived, we had this horrible midwife, which was my biggest fear. I wasn't scared of anything. I was scared of the midwife getting yeah. a bad we midwife. Yeah, we were talking about the oxytocin, isn't it? So that, that's what you need to give birth, yeah. that hormone. And actually, but then fear and anxiety... Will cancel that out. your adrenaline, which yeah. cancels out the oxytocin. Um, so exactly. Yeah, so you even just, you know, and we can get onto that more after about how yeah. that helps the birth. But in terms of the language that they use, that takes you back. I'm only... Two exactly. So she she actually didn't say that. <laughs> and then on my second birth, as you know, my home birth, I I didn't I didn't have any examinations examinations at all. At all. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't let them touch. And me. again, that's kind of when it comes back to the physiology, helping couples to understand that the cervix doesn't just start dilating from the first contraction. Mm. Um, it has to do a whole lot of work. It has to. I'm using my hands here, which obviously you can't see on on, <laughs> on the podcast. But the cervix has to be brought forward, and then it has to thin, and then the contractions start to dilate the cervix. So the body can be doing a really lot of work before there's any kind of sort of evidence of that by by doing a cervical examination. And then we interrupt it by giving it all this fear and worry where we just let the body do its job. Exactly. And I I will say that, which is, you know, what Lauren's referring to, that actually if if you were told, you know, well done, you're two centimetres. Yes, you feel much more positive Yes, your body's doing exactly what it needs to do. But to be honest, the best place for you right now is at home. You'd feel so much better rather than kind of, oh, you know, I think I'm ready, I think I'm ready, I'm ready to go to hospital, it's going to happen. No, sorry, you're only two centimetres or you're not in labour which is another pet hate of mine you are in labour you're just you know things are just at the stage where it's far too soon to be thinking about being in hospital and um and so do you think are we going to talk now about the the fear and the the hormone of the oxytocin because i think that's really key isn't it that people need to know that they feel relaxed and if you're in labour and you're feeling good and then suddenly a whole load of people rush in or the lights go on very bright that Mm. fear uh, and having new people coming into the room all the time could make you feel anxious right so that's another that's another um chunk of information that i talk about on the course because your main cheerleaders if you like for the process of labor are those birthing hormones oxytocin which is responsible for the contractions and endorphins which is your body's own natural painkillers and they're so powerful they are strong enough that actually they can start progress and complete the labor and then provide what's needed to sort of feed the babies bond with the babies going forward they are you know all hail the hormones but they're very sensitive and like you said if anything comes along that the mother is fearful about then adrenaline is going to cancel them out and this comes down to pure evolution it's survival Mm -hmm. because if we feel we're under threat then it's not it doesn't make evolutionary sense to be having a baby Mm. and if you are under threat having that sort of adrenaline cut through to bring you back to your senses is going to be far better at saving your life Mm. than feeling loved up and floaty light which is what the birthing birthing hormones do so adrenaline is always going to trump oxytocin and endorphins so what we talk about on the course is how to maximize the production of oxytocin so we talk about um keeping the room as dark as possible um, listening to music that you associate with relaxation, um, having familiar smells about, so whether it's oils or whether it's your own pillows or cushions, um, 
we talk about how massage can help promote the oxytocin so we talk about all of that and no, what about nipple stimulation? <laughs> I read about that actually in the in the book. And actually, I was talking to you. I love this. I was talking to a doula the other day who carries in her bag a bullet vibrator for clitoral stimulation. Yeah, so awesome. you know, she suggests they go into the bathroom, do what they need to do because obviously oxytocin is produced from nipple stimulation and clitoral stimulation, and it could be very helpful in the process. Um, yeah, so that's that just increases the relaxation and then the expansion of all. The yes, and because oxytocin, then, as you say, it just makes everything stretch open much more easily. You've got the relaxing in there as well. But when you get to full dilation, what happens is the birth canal, which is usually ridged for pleasure during lovemaking, flattens out. The area becomes excessively lubricated to help the baby on its journey as the baby kind of massages its way down the birth canal it's kind of like a two step forward one step back sort of scenario and allowing the baby to come down in its own time as opposed to instructing a mother to put a chin on her chest and push means that there's less likely to be any internal tears and then as the baby's head starts to crown it kind of massages back and forth over the perineum and that's what people are fearful of that because some bright spark has helpfully named that the ring of fire and they're frightened of that bit but actually once you understand that that head rocking back and forth that's the sort of burning sensation yes that's the burning sensation is actually encouraging your body to produce even more oxytocin which is what's really necessary for the safe release of the placenta but also for the bonding afterwards. And when women are cut, it, the, the, that's gone, that, that, you know, mm. that's a factor of kind of producing all those extra hormones. So oxytocin really is necessary all the way through that process. Understanding what creates fear, so whether it's bright lights, whether it's feeling observed, whether it is, you know, if it's, being given numbers or, or you know could yeah. be different things for different people loud noises the clients on the course are taught to kind of understand what might trigger an adrenaline release and then understanding how they can kind of reset the balance so if they and it's normal it is totally normal for there to be adrenaline moments during labor because you're bringing another life into this world so your animalistic mammalistic senses are going to be super yeah, on alert. alert. Exactly. Yeah. So there will be adrenaline, but you just don't want to get stuck in the adrenaline circle. Is that what you teach? So the man, say, or your birthing partner could say, you, you say to them, look, just can you manage the people coming in and out of the room and just, you know, do things like ask to have the lights down? Yeah, well, they like do, I just tell them to turn the lights off. Yeah. I don't tell them to ask. Let's go back and talk, talk us through all the steps of how we can prepare for birth because really what we're getting from this is that birth preparation is key yeah we wouldn't go into I just love this idea that you wouldn't run a marathon no one that I know who's run a marathon would go into it just got out thinking, of bed going I'm gonna run right, a marathon. I'll, uh, I'll go and run the marathon so I signed up for it so I'll uh I'll, I'll do that and I'll just uh see how it goes yeah. you know let, let my body take me where it wants to take me yeah, yeah you would train isn't it a birth it's a long process it's, it's one of the, the most uh you know challenging things that our body will go through so why would we not prepare for it in the same way we would prepare for a marathon yeah. so how can we from the very beginning prepare 
for birth. So books that I recommend are definitely Ina Mae Gaskin's oh. Guard to Childbirth. All hail Ina Mae. Yeah, that's the book that Lauren got me to read this week. It's yeah, brilliant, it is it? brilliant. Yeah. Another brilliant one is um, Millie Hill's Positive Birth book, oh, yeah, I which I think is a, a really great way of, of, of looking at the whole birth process and, and really informative. Um, definitely education, um, whether it's just a straightforward antenatal class or hypnobirthing, but anything that's going to kind of get you to understand how your body works, okay? So understand how the process of birth happens, how the body supports it, how our bodies are, you know, with the uterus, when there's no baby in it, it's like a tiny, tiny little organ, which is nestled in between all our other intestines. And then actually, when there's a baby in it, it grows to house a whole other human being. All our internal organs move out the way. Yeah, we might be a bit breathless. Yes, we might need to wee all the time. But we're still alive. We're still yeah. functioning. Yeah. So, you know, why would something so amazing during pregnancy fail you at the point of giving birth? Yeah. It's about understanding what things are going to make the birth harder. So, as I said, intervention. If you interfere with the physiological process, the body is no longer capable of producing the hormones in the quantity they need to be produced. So one intervention will most likely lead to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, and it's known as the cascade of intervention. Mm. Um, so... So it's mostly about... To try to prevent that happening. Or just asking questions. Yes, definitely. To believe that, we, that our bodies are made to do this, and we can do that through hypnobirthing and through affirmations yes I mean I think it's I think those things 100% make a difference to people's birth experience whether they you know I would love to say that doing something like a hypnobirthing course is going to sprinkle a magic it's like sprinkling you with fairy dust and you will all have the most straightforward birth it's not like that Mm. because women choose not all of them but will choose to give birth in a system because that is where they have been brought up to believe that that is safest Mm -hmm. um so it's about giving women those tools that we were talking about asking questions a lot of interventions are offered because it's policy guidelines as opposed to it being a hundred percent necessary for that woman as an individual so empowering a couple to be able to ask as long as there's no emergency hang on a sec how is this going to benefit me what will be the risks etc knowing knowing what you might be offered when you go to hospital so that when you're there it's not a surprise when they say oh you could have this and you go oh I didn't know what that was exactly but also if they ask a question and they are made aware of what the disadvantages could be and they still choose to go down that route then they've gone into it with their eyes open Mm. rather than yes I've agreed to induction but I honestly had no idea that it would make that you it, a regret. Yes, that it could take such a long time that it would end up in a cesarean anyway. If they'd ask, if they ask the questions and they're told that those are the possible disadvantages and they agree to do it, then it's not such a surprise and they can still use things like affirmation, still things like controlling the environment they're in, still using massage, still using listening to hypnobirthing tracks, and they still come out of it feeling positive Mm. yeah and so and like if you do have a cesarean making sure that the baby does come to you straight away absolutely you can still unless there is a really you know medical reason why the baby had to be born by cesarean in the majority of cases as soon as they've been checked over they can come straight 
to mum. Yeah. And there's such things as gentle cesareans as well now, which kind yeah. of a lot, a lot more maternal involvement, which is fab. We're interrupting this episode really quickly to bring you a message from our wonderful season sponsors. Tilly, check this out. Oh, that's rank. What is it? Nasty, isn't it? I was shocked too, actually. I've started using a mega home water distiller to purify my water. That chemical gunge you can see and smell is what gets left behind. Oh, so normally you'd be drinking that. Yeah. A distiller is the only way to create absolutely pure drinking water. So what are the benefits of having a mega home distiller? Well, the mega home distiller eliminates known nasty toxins like fluoride and chlorine. And it's one of the few distillers that actually removes estrogen too. And so you reckon that mega home is the one to get? Definitely. The mega home is more compact, it doesn't get so hot, and they have a service centre here in the UK, so any problems you can phone them, talk to them and get it sorted. Well, what about the filters I can buy in the supermarket? Great question. I actually did a lot of research on this before going ahead with the mega home. So many of the store-bought filters and the more expensive home filtration systems we hear about don't actually get rid of the most harmful toxins, they just improve the taste. Oh, I bet it's super expensive though. Au contraire, my friend. It's actually super affordable. Just have a look on their website. Okay, so how much water does it distill per day? Well, there's five of us in our house, and I do two distillations a day, which gives us more than enough. Oh, it sounds totally brilliant. I want one. Well, it's your lucky day, Tilly, because Mega Home are offering listeners of the Healthy Happy Home podcast a 5% discount. Just go to megahome-distillers.co.uk and enter the code HHH5 at checkout. Can't wait. So what it comes down to really is informed choice. Which is what we informed, talk about with everything. Informed it's, choice, yes. Women can choose to go whichever route they want to go down. They absolutely can. But they have to have all the information. They have, if you don't have all the information, yeah. then you might find yourself in a less desirable Yes, but I think it's with the education as well. I think it's definitely yeah. understanding and reframing how the body works. You know, so Tilly, as you were saying about how you can't un- understand or you were thinking how how the body expands yeah. and, and grows to sort of yeah, help the baby emerge. Or it's almost like a design fault is what <laughs> in my, you know, that sort of programming. No, ex- exactly. And that's so very common thought. Yeah. But, you know, nature's not stupid. As we became more upright, yes, our pelvises became smaller. Yes, it does mean that our babies have to kind of turn as they go through the pelvis as opposed to just going straight through. But we essentially give birth to our babies three months Yes. earlier so in that at least in that first three months when they're on the outside they need the same sort of conditions that they had when they were inside oh, I love that expression is it the fourth trimester fourth trimester yeah. absolutely absolutely our baby's heads mold it doesn't matter how big your baby's head is they mold they're designed to mold their skulls are not 100% formed when they come through the birth canal so that they can fit and that's why they need so much contact then in those first few yes. months. And people, you shouldn't try and sort of... Can you imagine leave, leave how scary it must be? Like, they just must be so scared. And they're these tiny things. They've just come out into the world. Because I've, I've been around people before who keep putting the baby down. And and, and I've said, why aren't you picking up the baby? Like, why do you keep not picking up the baby? Yeah. Why do you keep asking other people to feed the baby? I don't want the baby to get used to being held. And it's exactly what the baby needs, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? It lasts for such a short amount of time. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe my babies are nearly 17 and 14. Mm. Five minutes ago, 
Yeah. They were tiny, so treasure it. Yeah. It's just misinformation, really, isn't it, that, unfortunately? And uh, the other thing that I found amazing about reading the Iron Maze book is how we used to give birth standing up or squatting or yeah. holding to a tree or a rope, but now when you go into hospital, they're like, right, get on the bed. Absolutely. And actually, this gravity just, you know, it's so much easier to be And, I mean, that is to do, you know, that's probably another whole podcast on its own, but that's to do with the history of... This fear of birth hasn't just sprung up overnight. It's not like yesterday we're all fine and today suddenly we're not there is such a long history you know from sort of religion for the kind of invention of medicine um lack of hygiene i mean yes women used to die in childbirth but it wasn't from the process of giving birth Mm. it was from the seriously appalling conditions that they were giving birth in you know doctors doing autopsies on diseased bodies and then inserting that same hand with rotting pieces of flesh under their fingernails into the birth canals of labouring women. And the biggest killer was um, something called puperal sepsis, which is basically childbed fever. So... And the, the, not the actual birth, no, not the baby getting no, stuck and not coming. But out, it was the basically. women that were blamed. You know, they thought maybe yeah. it was something to do with the fact that breast milk had kind of leaked into their system and was poisoning them, or perhaps because you know, everything was so squashed inside that kind of faecal matter was building up and poisoning their system, or it was perhaps the shame of being pregnant because, you know, women weren't allowed to have sex, but men were. <laughs> um, and it was that kind of outward yeah. sign. And unmarried mothers were more likely to die of it, because apparently, of because of the shame. But this is this is really the huge point, because this fear of childbirth goes back so far. Yeah, and exactly. Actually, you know, we all need to understand that giving birth isn't what causes problems it's this kind of modern exactly analysis of what happens during birth which just isn't the case at all no but then we can go back so because Tilly was talking about the positions and stuff so when we're talking about birth preparation we've spoken about what we can do mentally and emotionally to prepare ourselves to educate ourselves probably one of the biggest things and keep educating ourselves after we've been on a course uh, keep doing these things at home. Yeah. Physically, what can we do? Because, like we said about the marathon, so physically we need to prepare for this. You huge do. Thing. It's a lot about listening to your body. It is a lot about listening to your body. I mean, I'm very wary of saying you should be in this position when you give birth. You should not be in that position because actually, a woman left to her own devices will instinctively move mm. how her body needs her to move in labour. Because, you know, again, this whole back-to-back babies get a really bad press because, yes. you know, if there's because in hospitals, labour isn't advised to go on for a certain period of time and babies that are back-to-back often need a bit longer to kind of turn to go into the pelvis. Um, you know, they're given this bad press. So anybody hears you've got a back-to-back baby and it's, again, it's kind of sharp intake of breath. Oh, dear. You know. but, but the difficulty with that is that with back-to-back baby, you don't really get a respite in between contractions. No, you don't. So you that don't. Because I remember you teaching on the course that um, the great thing about how the body is is built to deal with labour, to deal with the pain, yeah. is that, number one, it's a pain that we're, our bodies are expecting, Um uh, but number two, you have this respite in between contractions, and I kept waiting for that. And, and you never like, got that. <laughs> this respite, and that was what was very difficult yeah. for so me. Why is that? that why is that a solid contraction? It's not so much. It's a solid contraction, it's but like when babies are in between the contractions, back to oh. back, they're putting a lot of pressure on the mother's spine. Yeah. So things like again being informed. So things like leaning forward. So I talk about using birth balls. Um, pregnant women anyway should be sat on them because they're much, much more comfortable and better for them than sort of reclining back on a sofa. Mm -hmm. So I talk about 
positions from that point of view. Get on a birth ball, sit the wrong way around on a chair, and actually what that does is that tilts the pelvis forward. So if your baby is in an awkward position, you're giving it as much help as possible to get into a more beneficial position. When you sit on a ball, you're naturally going to bounce up and down on it, or you're going to kind of sway from side to side. And all of that is actually helping to tone all the ligaments supporting the uterus. So you're giving your body the best possible chance of getting your baby into a a beneficial position. Seeing someone like um, an osteopath or a chiropractor or um, cranial osteopathy and acupuncture to be the most amazing exactly and do it throughout your pregnancy Mm -hmm. don't just kind of leave it and do you think that people are like embarrassed about the thought of like going on their hands and knees while they're giving birth with doctors and midwives there like there's a bit of a you know i think so i think the thought you know of sort of you know mooing and being Being on your hands and knees yes probably does make people which is again why which I say we kind of need to remove yeah. the ickiness from it because it's yeah. a totally natural normal process that's what you did for me I think that's what it, it was like you're going to moo or you're going to and I did and you're going to make these strange noises and you're going to you know want to put your body in positions do that follow that exactly and I, I yes. think because, encourage that to be a positive because Listen Daniel was on the course with me and he heard that that was normal I was then aware of the fact that or I, I knew okay he knew this I'd been given permission to, to follow my body exactly and women yeah just and be given like you say just the, the permission mm. that actually they're telling me to kind of lie down on the bed that doesn't feel mm. right so I'm gonna be on my hands and knees mm. um sometimes women will feel more comfortable lying down on the back which is why I never say don't do this, don't do that. Yeah. It's listen to your body. And the partners on the courses are taught massage techniques. So if mm. they are having, if the women are having sort of back pain during contractions, then teaching them things like counter pressure um, or hip squeezes or anything like that, which can really sort of just help alleviate in between contractions. And it's always, and when the partners, you can see the partners getting it, as an instructor, I know, right, okay, they're going to have a good birth experience. Mm. Because if she doesn't have to worry about him, mm. she can focus on herself. Yeah. And all the techniques that we talk about, sort of the, you know, the affirmations, the hypnobirthing, the breathing, etc., are things that she can do herself. He knows what to do, how to step in if she needs that extra support. The fact that she knows that... yeah. I mean, she can just get and on and do what she needs to do. the environment, maybe, while she's concentrating on what she's doing. Yeah, and it's definitely not about setting up sort of a hostile environment and kind of barring the doors or, or anything like that. I don't, you know, I don't advocate that at all. But it's very much about sort of... He's kind of almost got to be the gatekeeper. Mm. So other things that you can have at your, um, at your birth, so a rebozo, which basically is a Mexican birth shawl, and you can Google them and you can buy them from suppliers in this country... Uh, but it's a long scarf which you can use to help with positions during labour and in pregnancy. So, for example, if you are kneeling on the floor leaning over a ball and you thread the rebozo underneath your stomach and your partner can kind of lift it slightly, so it's taking a lot of the I weight of you. I love that so much. And they can rock slightly as well, so they can kind of use that to mm. help you to move, but it's a very gentle, gentle movement and you feel very connected when you're doing that. Um, 
You can also use the rebozo to suspend yourself from whilst you're having a contraction. So some birth centres in hospitals actually have contraptions where they've got ropes suspended mm. from the ceiling. The idea is that when you have a contraction, you sort of hold on to this rope and you just let it take your weight and you bear down. Um it can be really, really helpful sort of for more the, the later stages of labour when you're actually pushing your baby out. Um, they're wonderful things. And again, sort of doing a bit of research on the internet about how to use those safely can really just be another sort of tool in your in your kit. So if you don't have a husband with you or some, mm. or your husband isn't like we were saying before, Lauren, like if you have a very anxious husband, yeah, would you advise getting a friend to come and do it or some? I mean, amazing opportunity to be there with. Someone yeah, absolutely, a, a friend of Radula. Yeah, yeah, a friend definitely. If you think that they're the sort of friend that's actually going to be. You know, informed, supported, actually, informed. Because I think that they, if they aren't informed, and then they're like, "Oh shit, what the hell's happening yeah, here?" Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, an informed friend, exactly. And I think you know, yeah, or a doula. I mean, lots of people choose to take their mums or their sisters in, which is fine. But I always say it's quite difficult for them to stay emotionally detached. Yeah, a doula, obviously, she's kind of emotionally invested in that couple while she's there or that woman, but it's not on the same she's a level. Professional birth yeah, partner. Yeah. Absolutely. So would you say then that if, well, like Tilly said, if you've got, because you said, you know, you see some of the couples on your course and you know which ones are going to have problems in the birth because the husband isn't, or the partner isn't as invested or isn't taking in the information or just, you know, isn't really that interested. And so therefore, because I've had, I have a friend that said to me, you know, only afterwards when I said, please do hypnobirthing, please do hypnobirthing. And, you know, her husband is quite a stressy, you know, person. And it's no reflection necessarily on the man. No. It's just like, okay, that's you and that's fine, but that's not okay for a birthing experience. So let's, you know, you step aside and let someone else look after your wife. Yeah, yes, exactly. For a man like that, that would be a relief as well. Yes, I think there's an awful lot of pressure on men or partners to be in the room. Mm. And actually, you know, that's not necessarily the best place for them to be. I mean, yes... My husband was amazing. Your husband was fantastic. Um, but I think it's a big ask to put on them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if they're not happy or they're not comfortable, then obviously there are other solutions or even having a doula there for for both of them because mm. a doula's not just there for mm. the, you know, the, the mother giving birth. She's there to look after the partner as well. And a doula's a bit... I mean, can you get a doula with the NHS or is it a private... No, because um, that's the problem. I mean, there are... We should have that. You can get, a, some in some cases, although I'm not sure whether that's available at the moment, there there were some sort of... Um, with, through Doula UK, there was something called the Access Fund, but I'm not sure whether the funding's there at the moment. Um, yeah, unfortunately, these it's things... it's actually not expensive. I mean, not as expensive. It's not as expensive as you would think for the amount of time... When you think about ha- how much an average couple will spend on the be- on the pushchair, on decorating the nursery, mm. on even, baby clothes... you were saying, Lauren, the private healthcare doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a better birth experience. No, exactly. I mean, I think it's in... in you know, comparison to that, a doula, it, a, yes, a doula is an expense, but they're on call for you 24 7 mm-hmm. for a month. That's incredible. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I just think that you couldn't possibly spend your money better no. elsewhere. Um, I, I, I do, I feel like we're, 
we're getting so much into all these amazing things, but I really want to talk about how physically how we can prepare for birth in terms of, um, you recommended to me something called spinning babies. Yes. Things like yoga, getting our, our bodies actually physically ready to do things like squatting. Yeah, I mean, squatting again is, is as we don't squat on a regular basis, squatting, full squats, can be quite tricky to do and to maintain. And also being Western women, because we don't squat on a regular basis, it actually doesn't help our... Um, help the shape of the birth canal. It, when when a Western woman squats, she's basically putting her pelvis in the same, pretty much a similar position as if she was lying down on the bed. You know, cultures where they're kind of squatting, squatting, uh, squatting all the time. Physiologically, that's a better position for them. But we can do semi squats, which is kind of, you know, bent at the knee, leaning forward, leaning onto something. Um, Again, sitting on a birth ball helps you prepare for that. Kneeling on the floor and leaning over a birth ball, spending time like that during your pregnancy is going to do several things. It's going to help you be more comfortable because obviously the heavier you get, the more pressure there is on your back. So by leaning forward, you're actually taking that pressure off your back. It's a great position for labour as well. Toning the ligaments, um, you know, being able to rest in positions like that. Lauren mentioned the website Spinning Babies, which has got some great exercises to kind of research beforehand and also great exercises if you find that labour's really quite stop-start at the beginning or really slow or doesn't seem to be progressing or waters are broken and no contractions have started. It's got some really good suggestions on there which are worth looking at and practising beforehand. So, you know, if you do find you need it, it's not kind of... Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Now pregnancy what? yoga is nice too, isn't it? I love pregnancy yeah. yoga. And I found the problem that was that women were coming towards the very end of their pregnancy where they were already very uncomfortable. Yes. And so I think it was you that advised me to go from early on. So for yeah. three months I, I did pregnancy yoga. Um, and that really helped just pre- get my body ready for the last months of pregnancy, yeah. the last weeks as well. Because if you start it in the last few weeks, your body's not really prepared. So I just wanted to keep my body supple and able to kind of do the things yeah. that you had taught me it needed to do. Exactly. And we live such sedentary lifestyles. Mm. You know, we drive to work or we take the bus or the train. We sit at desks, which is very different from what our, you know, our ancestors would have been doing. So any form of sort of gentle exercise. Yoga, you know, if you haven't done yoga before, then it's actually, it's fine to kind of start doing yoga antenatal yoga specific yoga for pregnancy or pilates or anything like that during your pregnancy we just have to um say that tilly has to leave early because she has something important uh, very important to get to so we are going to continue this without her lovely to meet you danny thank and you, you so silly. much it's so interesting all right i'll see you soon see you next week bye um so let's talk about the importance of nutrition in birth so it- it's really important to eat during pregnancy. Oh, obviously not during pregnancy. I mean, yes, do eat during pregnancy, <laughs> but also during labour. Mm. Um, well, that was something that Tilly said, actually. Her midwife had told her not to eat. No, I think that's, again, that's really old-fashioned. Mm. Um, they do still say that in hospitals, but I think if you're not eating, how are you going to have the energy to carry on doing what you're doing? Your body's not going to be able to kind of keep you going if you're not being given that energizing boost it's so important to eat drink remain hydrated um if you're in the pool then you need to have some sort of isotonic drink as well Mm. uh water's not good enough just on its own 
Um, and when you're in sort of really established labour, so when labour is really kind of getting going, you're going to not find eating a whole, I know, sandwich, for example, or bowl of pasta, that's going to be quite difficult to do because you just won't have the concentration or the focus to Mm. get through it. So it's almost like a little spoonful of something Mm. after every contraction. Um, A spoonful of nut butter. Yes, anything that's going to kind of give you that sort of, that boost and that sort of natural energy high i've actually got a flapjack recipe on my website that was specific well it was for lactating mamas but mm. but i made them i prepared them for my labor yeah and things like that and but even even something like a flapjack you might find it's a bit too chewy unless mm. it's kind of little bits broken off at the time um you know because when a contraction happens you're yeah. not going to be able to do anything else other than focus on that contraction so if you're mid-chew <laughs> you're going to have to spit it out um but anything that's just you know, that gives you sort of a good a natural sort of sugar burst or anything like that would make a massive difference in helping you remain energised. And what about during pregnancy? So during pregnancy, it's a it's a bit of a myth, this eating for two. Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, you have to be kind to yourself in the sense that if you are craving certain foods and you can't stomach other foods, then that's what your body is telling you that you need so again listen to your body but obviously like I said it's not necessarily to eat, necessary to eat mm. for two there's cravings and then there's there's oh, cravings I just and really want to eat chocolate biscuits exactly, all day long and I'm pregnant so I can. yeah yeah I mean I think in those first those early days I don't know about you but I remember oh I craved God, yeah. Like the salty Me and too. vinegar, really. Uh, well, I was eating. I didn't even know I was pregnant yet. I was waiting for the IVF results, and I wanted Walker's ready salted crisps with Tabasco on them. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting. Yeah, one. and fennel. My whole oh. pregnancy with Brats and fennel was salt. Really? Mm. Ooh, gosh, I don't like fennel at the best of times. But oh, I love yeah. it. No, it was it was salty, saltier and vinegarier the better for mm. both of them. Um, I didn't when I was pregnant with my first two and actually for years before that I'd not eaten red meat Um, same as me and then when I was pregnant with my youngest I cannot tell you how much I craved meat Mm -hmm. I hadn't eaten it for years yeah same thing happened to me and I was craving and then I found out that my iron was really low they were going on about not letting me have a home birth and all of that. So yeah, that's. Um, I think there are reasons that our body yeah. craves certain things. Exactly. And sometimes we do exactly. need those things. So yeah, exactly. I would... But I, I would say just you know healthy balanced diet, the same as when you are not pregnant. Um, yeah, and just eat eat sensibly. I know some women who can afford to go privately yeah. for their births. So they will assume that because they can give birth at the Portland or some of these wonderful, um, wonderfully thought of London hospitals, that's going to give them the best chance at the best birth. But statistics don't actually show that, do they? No, I think with private, if you are going to opt to go privately, then you're better off to pay for an independent midwife mm. who will be pricey but not going to be anywhere near as expensive as kind of paying for a private consultant. Mm. Um, But I do think, again, that comes back to fear. People are frightened. Um, Statistically, you are less likely to have a caesarean if you give birth 
at home. There's a slight difference in the figures that for second-time mothers, uh, it's more straightforward than first-time mothers, but that's not because it's riskier. It's just first-time mothers, um, labour can go on for a lot longer and they can get tired. So, Mm. you know, that explains that sort of increase in transfer rates. But what tends to happen, and I'm aware that it's a generalisation, but giving birth paying for a private consultant you tend to get a whole load more intervention yeah because um, you're just then paying for this doctor that we, we you know we've spoken about the fact that we've seen we see hospitals and doctors to be kind of something we associate with stress or with fear or with worry because oh. really when other than birth would we go to a hospital other than for something bad or something yeah. dangerous so then if you've got lots of doctors around uh, it's going to be more intervention and it's going to be more likely that the labour will regress yes. and lead to interventions. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's. I think again, it goes like I said, it goes back to fear. The reason that people would pay for a private doctor is because they're terrified of not getting their epidural on time, mm. um, and they are terrified of having someone they don't know attend the birth. So, for them. That might give them peace of mind, but yes, in my experience, the people who tend to go down that route will have induction mm. um cesarean or you know it, it will be managed in some way generalization yes but as i say in my experience that, yeah that it's anecdotal but it tends to be the way it goes yeah, from your perspective exactly as a birth worker exactly yeah. because you know if you're paying for a certain consultant to be there for when your baby is born and that certain consultant might be going on holiday around your due date then I mean, I sound really cynical, but unfortunately, that can often be the case. You might be scheduled for an induction a bit sooner mm. so that the consultant you're paying for can be there. But it all comes down to fear. You know, if we were much more relaxed about the prospect of birth in this country, it wouldn't be an issue. So the best way really we can spend our money is, is educating ourselves, doing hypnobirthing courses, preparing, yeah, having a doula perhaps, or a private midwife. Um, yeah, if I mean, I, th- I think it's even... You know, like I said, the, the, the amount of money that people generally tend to spend on baby equipment, yeah. you don't need it until you need it. And actually a lot of stuff you can sort of borrow from friends or hand-me-downs. Mm. I think if you have got a budget, um, you know, yes, obviously we would all love to be able to have disposable cash to kind of, you know, get this, this and do this. But there are priorities. There are priorities. And I think educating yourself is definitely got to be up there. Um, having someone with you who is a dedicated member of your team who is going to develop a relationship with you, is going to support you or you and your partner, those are the sorts of things that are definitely worth the investment, 100%. So what I'd like to be quite clear on is that none of this is about um, shaming any women or, or talking um, in any more of a derogatory term or anything to women who have undergone cesareans or any interventions. Not at all. What it is about for us is after doing all this research and working with you for five years now, um, understanding that if we prepare in a certain way, we are less likely to need to have those interventions. Yes. Very different if a woman chooses to have an elective cesarean. However, I am hoping that the information we're giving about physiological third stage and the natural processes of labour might encourage some women who may have thought that that was the best option to not go down that route. Yeah. Um, Based on the fact that it's going to be better for the baby's immune system as you know, I could talk about microbiome until the cows come home, but we don't have time about for that now. And we are do, going to be doing another show specifically about microbiome oh, wow, okay. and, and birth processes, yeah. the, science, the science behind yeah. it. Um, so 
I just kind of, yeah, just wanted to put it out there that this is, is, is very much about us giving the information to hopefully encourage women to do the preparation beforehand in order to prevent those. So if someone has had a traumatic birth before, but they're planning on having another baby, there are ways around it. It doesn't always have to be like that, Not right? Not at all. Not at all. And it, it, it's it's and a lot of my clients are kind of second timers, mm. subsequent babies. And a lot of the time when you're just kind of talking through the birth physiology, you can see those light bulbs mm. going, oh. oh yeah, that's exactly. So that's that happened to me with friends that I've spoken yeah. to about, you know, the partner and they're like, oh, okay, my partner was really stressy. And now I'm understanding that I was stressed because he was stressed yeah. and I didn't want him to be stressed. So my labour was regressing and my the sphincter law as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm very Ina quickly, May. let's touch on the sphincter law. So sphincter law, law so Ina May Gaskin, um, it, she... she discovered can't say invented but she discovered something that she named the sphincter law which basically works on the basis that any sphincter muscle so whether it's the sphincter at your bladder or your anus or indeed your cervix works best in atmospheres of privacy and seclusion so that is why generally when we go to the toilet for example unless you've got young children you tend not to go in a crowd it meanwhile tends to be. my young child always wants privacy himself right but when i'm on the toilet, toilet yeah exactly um it, it's very much if you sort of say the same way if you asked a, a gentleman to stand up and we in a bowl in the middle of a sort of a clouded crowded living room chances are he wouldn't be able to do mm. it because our sphincters work best in atmospheres of privacy and the cervix is exactly the same and actually one of the things i always say to clients is when you're in labor go and spend some time on the toilet mm. so it's not only because the position when you're sat on the toilet is really beneficial but with legs raised on a stool right isn't that the best way yeah to... yes but i mean sitting on the toilet in itself is, is going to be the with the knees lower than the hips mm. it's not so much about sort of it's more to do with the association. So when you are in a toilet, your subconscious associates the release of sphincter muscles. So it's the release of the cervix muscles, which mm. is kind of what you're you're going for in that context. But yes, if it's not a place that you would feel comfortable going for a wee or even making love. I mean, I know <laughs> maybe slightly different. But that, uh, that sphincter muscle will close. It and will therefore close. the cervix will close and labour yeah. will regress again. So they're all exactly. these things that make labour regress. For instance, induction. Yeah. So we want to go into it in as natural a way as possible in order to help it be. So when women think, I'll have an induction, um, I'll have a epidural because it's going to be the easiest way for me not to feel the pain. Epidurals are actually going to in most cases, make labour regress. Yes, also. it's what anything that interferes with the natural process. Mm. So again, it's reframing what the contractions are, and hopefully, if you can do that, then they become not so afraid of the pain. Mm. Understand that each contraction is bringing you one step closer to meeting your baby, and once it's gone, it's gone. And actually, if you go through labour focusing on each individual contraction, then you stand much better chance of of, of maintaining. Or being able to do it then kind of thinking how many more have I got um epidurals are because people are frightened of the pain or because if they're stressed they're feeling pain whilst I have seen many an epidural make the difference between a positive birth and a negative birth experience it is a fact that it will inter interrupt the uh, hormonal communication between the brain, the bloodstream and the body because there's literally a physical barrier stopping that message getting through. Mm. So what tends to happen with epidurals is because that messaging is not getting through, labour will slow down, right. in which case they would need to then use artificial oxytocin 
which is administered directly into the bloodstream, so there's no blood-brain communication to keep the labour speeding up. Which will impact, so like you say, intervention leads to intervention, so that will impact kind of the, the oxytocin once the baby's born, yeah, it will absolutely. interrupt breastfeeding, uh, the placenta, yeah. all of that. I mean, what I, what I would just like to say here as well, and we kind of touched on it briefly right at the beginning, is as I said, skin to skin and physiological birth is the ideal, that's what nature intended. If you do have intervention, um, if your baby is separated from you, skin to skin is not just a birth thing, Mm. a just after birth thing. Um, Yes, it obviously has huge benefits at that time, especially if you want to initiate breastfeeding, etc. But you can do skin to skin at any time. So if you are separated for whatever reason, as soon as you get the opportunity, naked baby, naked mum, and just literally spend as long as you can i still do it now when my kids have got a fever absolutely (laughs) absolutely absolutely it's great as well for for dads or partners yeah you know or mums when they come home from a long day of work to reconnect with the Mm. baby so i don't want you to think that if your past birth was quite interventionist if you were separated from your baby well that's it then no you you know and and it's even like you know women who have to stop breastfeeding whatever you can relactate yeah so there's you know the 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 physiology of a woman's body is amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, definitely. Um, just very quickly, because we do have to wrap up. Ina made us talk about the fact that obviously, like you you're saying, we're not, you know, we are giving informed choice, but there are facts here. So the fact is that hospital labour will um will offer some hindrances. Um, and a perfect environment would be somewhere where we feel calmer. However, a calm birth doesn't have to be at home, and we can have a calm birth and make sure that we implement all the things to aid that process in a hospital so how can we do that so think about the things that you have at home that make you feel comfortable so i mentioned briefly your own cushions perhaps your own blanket um definitely your own clothes not a hospital gown Mm -hmm. are there any smells that you find relaxing so if you burn oils or anything sort of any way which ones of those mm. make you feel oh, relaxed essential oils in labor for me were oh I, and i had i'd written i have actually i wrote an article about it on my website um which oils i used for what for, stage, so what of, stage? Amazing. Of, of labor brilliant they helped so much they do but i mean even if you're not sort of you know au fait with kind of oils to that degree if there is a smell you like mm. then when you're sort of maybe taking an opportunity to relax having a bath um, or if you're doing hypnobirthing, listening to your downloads, have that smell on a tissue near your head because your subconscious will then mm. associate that smell mm. with signs of relaxing. So you can be at home or you can be in hospital or you can be having a cesarean. And if you smell that smell, mm. your subconscious thinks, ah, relax. Mm. So that's really beneficial. Um, dim lighting? Yeah, so I like having fairy lights or little mm. led candles because i think it provides such romantic atmosphere and you know this time of year it's so easy yeah. to get hold of fairy lights and actually you can put fairy lights on the back of a chair and suddenly the chair becomes magical mm. so even if you're having an epidural put your fairy lights up turn the lights on you know you need to kind of create more of your own natural oxytocin yeah. so why not do that if you're having a water birth in the birth center it will be amazing during a contraction to be able to just kind of focus on those lights it makes us feel more private less observed which is obviously going to promote the oxytocin um 
take in lovely bits of food that you like to eat, that you like to snack on. What music are you going to be listening to, whether it's hypnobirthing tracks or whether you kind of come up with your own playlist that's mm. going to make oh, a difference. Making a playlist, I think, is one of my, my top tips for, right. for preparing for birth. Exactly. Yeah. And really think about that. Don't kind of think, oh, you know, I'll see, I'll just grab this on my way yeah, to hospital. Yeah, should be. Plan. Yeah, absolutely. Plan. But that, so that's what it all comes down to, because we do have to wrap up now, but what it really, what's the message here? I mean, I would say preparation, environment, mindset. Yeah. And that's really interesting. When I break down my course, I break it down that we look at breathing and relaxation, environment and mindset, because yeah. those are the three Well, I said it because that's what you taught me. It's funny, <laughs> that's why then. Oh, it's funny where did you get that idea from. Um, that that is very much what it comes down to. And actually, if you kind of master those three things, then it massively increases the chances of you having a positive birth experience. I love that. Positive birthing experience. So uh, every week we have listener questions come in. So we've got... Um, a couple of questions. I think we've only really got time for one now. So I'm just got a really interesting question from Rosalind, who says her first child was born by emergency C-section. Second birth was VBAC, uh, a vaginal birth after cesarean. She says, if I have another baby, I'd love to have a home birth. Would the NHS agree to send midwives to home birth after two previous births as mentioned? And what would you recommend I do to prepare? So in theory, the fact that you've had a vaginal birth should be absolutely no hindrance to you wanting a home birth but it depends very much on what your hospital guidelines are so you would need to sort of speak to the midwife if if it's a yes well then fine um if it's a no then you would need to ask to see the guidelines now remember they are guidelines there is no law the only person who can make the ultimate decision on where you give birth is you. Yeah. So if you decide that you want a home birth with your third baby, um, the NHS are beholden to send somebody out oh, they to support are. you. So either way, she could get a midwife. Yes, to come I'm out. not saying it would be easy. She right. might have to change trusts. Um, she potentially might have to have a meeting with sort of consultant midwives and sort of get an individual a care plan. If it's a no, it might be, it might be absolutely, they're absolutely fine with it. Um, and would you advise having a doula there as well in a situation like that? At the actual birth? Mm. Or I think it's always a good idea to have yeah. a doula um, because she's just, you know, she's so much more than just another, yeah. another support team. Um, I would sort of do some research into where you can hire birth pools from. Um, and I would, yeah, I would prepare, read Ina May Gaskin, Millie yeah. Hill's Positive Birth Book, and just focus on what your body is absolutely capable but of. But what it comes down to is it, it's her own choice it's at the end of the day. absolutely her choice, and yeah. she makes the decision where yeah. she gives birth. Which was what I remember you saying to me, because they would say, your iron's too low, and you're not going to be able to have a home birth, and... I did some stuff to get my iron up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd made my own decision to have yeah. a home birth, which was the best decision I ever made, and it was the most amazing and transformative experience of my life. No, so I'm go, very then. happy I kept that. So we do another thing every week um, where we say what we're into. So it could be anything that you're into this week to do with that promotes natural health in any way. It could be a product, a book, um, a, a mindset, um, a food, anything. So um, is there anything in particular that you are loving this week? So I have got into recently, um, they're these kind of, they're called double chocolate caramel cups. Oh God, what are um, you doing to me? By a sort of, um, can can I say, deliciously Ella. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I got into them because I actually, you'll be very proud of me, Lauren, I did a detox about a month ago and I sort of cut out all refined sugar and I've got a 
terrible sweet tooth. So I was kind of doing all these researching into things that I could I could do. And I found these and oh my goodness, I mean they're like my crack. <laughs> I cannot get enough of them. And what's worse is my daughter's discovered them. Oh god. So I'm now having to eat them all. I'll <laughs> <laughs> keep them hidden away. Yes, I know that's not very mature, but they're so <laughs> delicious. I can't I cannot share them. And they're them. not cheap as well. So if you have to buy for like all the girls and Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's about self-care, self-loving. Yeah, absolutely. And just to finish with that, I, I want to just read a quote, um, an Ina May quote. I mean, I've got a million written down here and I'd love to read them all, but we don't have time. But the one I want to finish with is this. Remember this, for it is as true as it gets. Your body is not a lemon. You are not a machine. The creator is not a careless mechanic. Human female bodies have the same potential to give birth as well as aardvarks, lions, rhinoceri, elephants, moose and water buffalo. Even if it has not been your habit throughout your life so far, I recommend that you learn to think positively about your body. Wonderful. Thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us today and giving it. us all your amazing information. We could carry on talking for ages, but we've gone on way too long already. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Healthy Happy Home. We're so grateful to every single one of you who chooses to press play. Please connect with us over on Instagram at Healthy Happy Home Podcast. We have a heap of amazing giveaways and discounts and remember to use the hashtag Elevation Nation. And if you enjoy our show, why not tell your fellow elevators about us or people who you think could benefit from each episode message. Rating, reviewing and subscribing to Healthy Happy Home will also help other people to find us so that we can grow our Elevation Nation. Thank you to Mega Home Water Distillers for sponsoring this season of Healthy Happy Home. Head over to megahome-distillers.co.uk to learn more about the most reliable and efficient home drinking water distiller on the market and to benefit from a 5% discount as a listener of Healthy Happy Home by using the code HHH5 at checkout. Thank you to Megahome.